was a kid going to VBS. And I don't know why they work vacation and school and Bible all into one phrase, but somehow it works and the kids love it. So even if you, uh, let's, I don't want to stress slogan out, but even if you have some kids that haven't quite decided whether or not they're going to go, just bring them on down. Like, we'll have a good time. She's in charge of it. So that'll be, that'll be totally fine. But we are really looking forward to it. So I hope that's something um, that you can participate in and that you can use even as an opportunity for outreach. You just never know what's going to drag somebody to church and get them connected and get them involved. There's not, uh, there's not a shortage of stories uh, of people for whom VBS was their entry point into a relationship with God and church and just the whole discipleship process. Um, so last week I was out of town uh, all week. We left after church Sunday and was out of, out, of, out of town all week teaching at our final session of camp um, those of you that don't know, we are involved in camp, and there's kids who are just like gone all summer, it seems like. Uh, if you've never been up there, it's, it's pretty. It's very pretty. Uh, however, it is like the 10 plagues of bugs and mosquitoes, and so you've just got to be in it to like win it, because otherwise, if you're annoyed by that kind of stuff, you're just going to be driven away. Um, but this last week was something un- uh, exceptional. There, it was a minor miracle. There low ho- humidity, hardly any bugs, and it was just beautiful. Now, I was teaching up there, and so teaching occupies a, a part of the morning, and then the rest of the time, just depending on what you got going on, you kind of occupy yourself. And I was working on the sermon for the Sunday, and I was working on some other church stuff, and I had been holed up in my little room all week, and, you know, just dark and cramped, and I thought, man, I need to work outside. And so I went outside to work, you know, I thought this would be perfect. There's no bugs or anything like that looking out over the lake. I mean, isn't that beautiful? Like, isn't that nice? And so I, 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 have, a, I have a little problem with attention, though, and this was probably not the, the best place to be. And you can't really see it in the picture. It's this little tiny dot of a boat up there right directly above where the dock is. And I, had, I have actually never witnessed anybody water skiing before. This is my first water skiing thing. So camp is on this lake. And other people actually have cabins on the lake as well. And there are these people water skiing. Now, I've never done it before. And so I'm no judge. But I also think the people that were doing it had never done it before as well. <laughs> So I'm watching, I'm working, I'm reading, you know, like typing stuff out, and I'm watching this person try to get up on their water skis, and I don't know if the boat was taking off too fast, but they just couldn't get out of the water. They would lose, you know, grip, and just nothing, nothing was working right. Finally, they got up out of the water, and of course, here I am trying to be working on a sermon, and I'm totally not paying attention. I'm watching this person, and they're going around the lake, and I, I don't know. Again, I've never water skied, so I don't know what any of this is like or what it's supposed to look like, but I think it's supposed to look more graceful than what this person was doing. This person was trying to avoid wiping out the whole time, and so they kind of looked like a toddler, you know, in in terms of balance, and the boat felt like it was whipping around too fast, and I'm sitting there at my, you know, my little makeshift office, and I'm like leaning, like, you know, like, don't, no, 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 don't don't hit the tree, don't hit the dock, and they came in right along through here, they came, or I'm pointing to the screen, they came in right along through here, and I'm like, you're too close to the dock, I don't want to see a terrible accident, I mean, we're miles away from my hospital, this is awful, and uh, I'm The whole time, I'm standing there on the shore, and I'm thinking, they're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. And finally, as they come around this last little turn, you can see this tree right over here. They kind of wiped out and then went behind the tree. And I'm like, I don't, so they didn't make it, clearly. And I'm like, is this person okay? Should I go find out if they're okay? I mean, it was like a wholesale wipe out just. And then, true story, I have never once heard an ambulance up there. And about 15 minutes later, I hear an ambulance. 
Now you guys are like, totally unrelated. You know, some, somebody accidentally pocket dialed 911 and that was no, no big deal. This person was fine. But the, I was like watching this whole thing stressed out because I did not think that they were going to make it. The book of 1 Thessalonians is Paul expressing a sense of relief because he has been watching from the shore at the church of Thessalonica and he's like, they're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. And he gets word that they've made it and he is just overwhelmed with relief. And when you read the book of 1 Thessalonians, you are reading that relief. You're reading like this church that just shouldn't have made it. Paul had only been able to be there for about three weeks. Uh, They had kicked him out of town, banned him from the town. He just couldn't like, he couldn't get anything, couldn't get any traction. And you're just, he was worried sick about these Christians thinking that there's just no way. There's so much working against them. There's so much animosity toward uh, Christianity and discipleship in the town. They're not going to make it. And when he hears that, not only did they make it, but they're doing awesome. He's just overjoyed. And you've all experienced that. You've all thought the worst and it turns out somebody did better than you thought. Or you've all thought, man, I don't think my kid's going to pass that test. And, and, you know, they got like a 72%. You set your sights low enough, 72 looks great. Whatever it is, you're just like, they're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. And they made it. And there's this sense of joy and sense of relief. Now, as we read this book, you'll notice throughout this book, Paul highlights characteristics and practices and beliefs and habits that this church had that was really the difference between surviving and thriving. Like they they weren't just doing okay, they were doing awesome. And so what we've been doing with this series is exploring those things that Paul highlights. So two weeks ago we talked about how they had this sense of openness to the truth. They were Something about the truth uh, resonated with them. Last week we talked about how they had the ability to stand firm in the face of some pretty severe uh, uh, opposition. I want to read uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. As for the other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are now living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And that more and more is where we got the series title, to do this more and more, to make this your habit, but you just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. I've got a, uh, a philosophical question for you that I want you to just kind of think about uh, for a second or two. And it's this. Why do the right thing? Why do the right thing? And I realize, like, on one hand, I mean, we don't ever, we rarely spend time asking very philosophical questions or really basic questions like that. Unless you're talking to, like, a child who keeps asking why, why, why. You tell them, like, don't hit your sister. Why, why, why? You know, you got to come up with, like, you know, reasons why you're not supposed to do that. But why do the right thing? Now, some of you internally may be rolling your eyes a little bit. You're like, why is water wet? Why do birds fly? You know, you do the right thing because it's the right thing. You just, that's what you do. There's just, you don't have to get much deeper than this. You don't have to overthink it. And if, if, we're, if we're Christians, we grew up in the church, we might, you know, like sprinkle on a little, for the Bible tells me so. That's why. That's the motivation. It doesn't need to go much deeper than that. Okay, fair enough. But the authors of Scripture had a different answer. That wasn't their answer. If you were to ask uh, Paul, or if you were to ask Peter, if you were to poll James and said, hey, why do we do the right thing? They would have a different why. They would have an answer, but it would be different than just let's do the right thing. And uh, we've seen this answer before, but maybe we've not given it much thought. So more often than not, in the Scriptures, when speaking to the motive of our moral behavior... 
the, uh, the, the Bible doesn't say, the New Testament doesn't say you do this because it's right. Rather, you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 4 verse 1, we instructed you how to live, not in a way that is right, but in order to please God. Now, this is just one verse, but I think, it, let me show you some highlights. Uh, the next slide, if you look. This is a, a little sampling of all the different places in the New Testament that it says, this is why you do what is right. And we're going to spend the rest of the morning reading each and every verse right here. You ready? No, I'm not going to do that. But I want to pull out a couple highlights real quick for you. Uh, parents, you'll like this one. Uh, children, obey your parents in everything. Why? For this pleases the Lord. That's why. Children, youth group's back in town this week. Children, teenagers, obey your parents. Why? Why do I have to listen to what you do? For this pleases the Lord. Did you notice the verse doesn't offer a statute of limitations about how old you are? So, you know, grandparents, your kids are adult children, obey your parents, right? Leon's nodding to me. Obey your parents. Why? For it pleases the Lord. Here's a little, so you have the moral behavior, obey your parents, and then you have the moral motivation. For this pleases the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 5, this is kind of a more obscure rule, so to speak. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying, parents, amen, repaying their parents and grandparents. Why? For this is pleasing to God. Not because it's the right thing to do. Is it the right thing to do? Yes. But because it's pleasing to God. Even when you read in scriptures, like there's an Ephesians uh, chapter 6, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Did you know that the word right means approved by God? And so here we have our moral motivation is whether or not the things we do are pleasing to God. This is so important. Jesus talks about this in John 8, 29. For I always do what is pleasing to him. Very interesting. Very interesting. So we can say it this way. The primary motive for doing what is right is whether or not it is pleasing to God. Now, some of you, blank expressions, I can tell you're like, I don't really care because I don't care about being pleasing to God. That's a big judgment for me to make. I know. I understand that. But we'll talk about, like, how do we stir up that desire to please God in just a second. But we have to understand what the Bible is getting at when it says, this is why we do what is right. This is why you do the right thing. Now, some of you are like, tomato, tomato. I don't care. As long as people are doing the right thing, who cares why they're doing it? Who cares why? Well, there is a tremendous difference why they're doing it. It's huge. It's the difference between transactional and relational. Can we all agree? Can we all understand? Do we all know that Valentine's Day is a made-up holiday? We know that, right? It's a made-up holiday. No big deal, right? They picked this random day in February. They said, we don't have anything else going on. Hallmark started manufacturing cards. And all of a sudden, everybody's got to celebrate Valentine's Day. It's made-up holiday. Let me let you in on a little secret. All holidays are made-up holidays. Did you know that? They're all made up. You guys are going to go somewhere and celebrate Labor Day. You're going to be on a cabin for the weekend. Are you really going to be celebrating labor? 
as you're out there grilling on Monday? No, they're just made up holidays and we use them as opportunities to express different things. And so if I were on Valentine's Day, I know it's a little out of season, but if I were on Valentine's Day to go get a card, go to Target the night before Valentine's Day, because that's when it seems to be most populated by guys getting their wives' cards. But if I were to go to, to, uh, to Target, get a card and to write, you know, flowers, chocolates, all that, you know, all the typical stuff, and to write in there, Dear Kareen, I am giving you this card because it is the right thing to do. <laughs> Sincerely, Patrick. Is it the right thing to do? I, I suppose, you know, arguably, yeah, it's a good thing to do. You should do it. Is that why I should do it? No. Is this a happy Valentine's Day for me? If on Valentine's Day, rather, I get Korean flowers and chocolates and cards and all that, all that normal stuff, and I use this as an opportunity to say, hey, I really love you and I want to express my gratitude for all the ways that, that I appreciate you and I hope these things are pleasing to you. Is that at least a better Valentine's Day or a better way to start? Absolutely. It's the difference between transactional this obligation, and relational. That's the, that's the major difference. So why do we do the right thing? Because it's the right thing? How does that feel with God when God's like, you know what I'm interested in is a relationship with you. Well, God, I'm just going to do it because it's the right thing. Well, I guess it's a start. I guess that's, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll start there and we'll work our way forward. But it's an incredibly crucial distinction as to why we do the right thing. So what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through uh, three reasons why this is so important, why this matters so much, and why it's critical to reestablish our desire to please God in order to do the right thing. Why this is critical. And I think that we can literally walk out of here this morning having our relationship with God transformed in a, in a positive way. Number one, number one, why it's critical. Behavior and identity. Behavior and identity. There are, it seems, a feature of our culture that almost daily there is a celebrity who has done something uh, terrible and they have to get up and issue some sort of apology. So they have to say, I'm sorry I you know, did drugs or I'm sorry I punched that person or I'm sorry, whatever. Whatever it is, it just seems like it's constant and sort of a feature of our society. Maybe we're just holding people more accountable. Uh, but in light of that, there has sprung up this, uh, this reaction to those apologies. Uh, there's a website that's called, I think it's called Sorry Watch. And what they do is they critique public apologies. And what they say is most public apologies actually aren't apologies, right? And you've experienced this and you've offered these too. Where you've offered apologies that, well, I'm sorry if you got your feelings hurt, right? You said those words, but it wasn't really an apology. And so they actually published this bad apology bingo card that you can use if you want to uh, critique. This is, this is super helpful in a uh, conflict with your spouse. You know, you pull this thing out and like, all right, how, no, I'm just totally kidding. But things like, you know, using the passive voice, mistakes were made, that's not really an apology. Anytime you have the word if, that's not really an apology. You know, anytime you try to explain, 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 but don't actually accept responsibility, not really an apology. And I think one of the, the, one of the biggest things, as I was reading an article that they were talking about, one of the biggest things they say, do not do, do not say this phrase, and it's a popular phrase among apologies, is the phrase, that's not who I am. Because this is what, uh, th this is who you are. In fact, let, let, here's the quote from the website I thought was pretty good. Maybe you can use this. 
Most apologies are actually a cover for justifications. Perhaps we find it difficult to reconcile our actions with a conception of ourselves as good people. Apologizing well means acknowledging that, at least in that moment, you were not a good person. If you are so genuinely shocked by your own conduct, then you need to do some introspection. That is not who I am. But you did that thing. And so I think what people are saying when they're saying that is not who I am is they're trying to separate their behavior from their character. They're trying to set their, separate their behavior from their identity. What they're trying to say is, I can conduct myself in this way over here, but I can still get credit for being this type of person. This is my identity. This is my character. And I get it. I get it's a natural human desire. I mean, we've all done things like that. Maybe we're just saying, like, that's not who I want to be, and that's totally fine. But the New Testament authors were trying to do the exact opposite. They are trying to connect our behavior and our identity. It's called character. And they're trying to say that the things you do spring out of your identity. Identity. And so your identity needs to be shaped in order for your behavior to be shaped. In, in, in Ephesians chapter 5 uh, verse 8, it says, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. So you are light in the Lord. Behave as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And find out what is right. No, what pleases the Lord. It's relational, not transactional. What pleases the Lord. Second reason this is so important is because we can be technically right, but morally wrong. Technically right, but morally wrong. I know some of the black and white folks in the room are starting to squirm a little bit. Wait a second. Technically right, morally wrong? What are you talking about? Uh, when I was a kid, we didn't uh, have the luxury of iPads and portable DVD players or Wi-Fi when we were going on road trips. So we just had to sit in the back seat and, you know, some, I, I could read, but some people get car sick. You just have to deal with it. You have to play the ABC game. If you don't know what the ABC game is, well, then you've, you know, you're not old enough, I guess. But there's lots of opportunities when you're sitting in the back seat with your siblings uh, and the, at least a feature of the cars that we always drove, it was just one long vinyl back seat and it's hot and muggy and sticky and you're sticking to the seat and just, you know, you just get a little worked up and agitated and there, there begin to be, and I think this is mostly universal, there begin to be like land wars in the back seat. Uh, I overheard somebody talking about like one of the things their parents did was like, you look out that window, you look out that window, and you look straight ahead. And then, you know, two seconds later, mom, they're looking out my window. You know, it's the, it's the constant argument in the back seat. Now, this is what my parents did. And I think all parents do because this is like our first instinct is like, all right, Patrick, stop bugging your sister. And Patrick, of course, does not listen to his, you know, first warning. Patrick, you stay on your side of the seat. Do not cross that vinyl, you know, line, that bead right there, that is your side of the seat. And what do people like Patrick do? Just because there's something in us. Well, you know, walk right up to the edge with your fingers. Mom, Patrick's on. No, I'm not on your side of the seat. I'm not over there. Or mom didn't say anything about airspace, so my hands can be over on your side of the seat. I know, I was an annoying child. I right? just... So my parents didn't have options, but uh, I, I, was, uh, I was looking for a picture of kids in the back seat, and I actually came across a product, which I think is kind of terrible, but this is called the, this is called the, it's, it's literally called the Wally, because it creates a wall. And I was just thinking, I was looking at that, and I was thinking, man, 
those parents are not giving kids enough credit for their desire to annoy their siblings because I just would have lobbed stuff over. I mean, it just, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have prevented it. And, and the thing I don't like about this product is I guess it does solve one problem, but you can either teach your kids to behave themselves or you can like confine them to their own space. And I just feel like maybe teaching them to behave themselves is probably the better of the two options, but, uh, but I totally get it. Now, in, in, in theory... Was, was the kid in the back seat that's crawling, you know, walking up to the very line to bug his sister, is he technically right? Yes. Is he morally wrong? Yes. And we've all dealt with that line of being technically right, but our hearts are not doing the right thing. Our hearts don't really care about being right. Our hearts are just trying not to get in trouble. So our hearts are morally wrong. And, and, the, and the problem is, in terms of intent, being seeking to be technically right is very much the same as seeking to be wrong. In terms of our hearts and our desires and our intent, seeking to be technically right is very much the same as seeking to be wrong. And this is from personal experience, but you can, you are just, when you're asking this question, you can technically write yourself into some very bad places. Well, technically it's not wrong. You know why you do that? You know why you technically write yourself into some bad places? It's because you're not being honest. You're not a good judge of that, what's technically right and what's wrong. You're not good at that. And so you technically write yourself right into sin. Well, technically. And then somebody else comes along and like, what are you doing? Well, you took all these incremental steps along the way. Technically, the way you define things, the way you justified things. You know what wipes all of that garbage away? is don't ask what's technically right. Ask was, what is pleasing to God. Does this please God? That's, it, it, it's a much better question because it's not looking for a line. It's looking to honor your, your creator and maker. But it's not looking to find out what you can get away with. What is pleasing to God? It's just a much better question. comes from a much better place and I believe leads to much better choices. Number three. So behavior and identity... Technically right, morally wrong, and then clarity from character. Char clarity from character. Um, I'm fascinated a little bit. Uh, I was reading earlier this week. Uh, this, this section of our, our nation's history fascinates me. So 150 years ago, there was a lot of political arguments about slavery and whether or not, you know, states' rights and all that kind of stuff. But what may not be as apparent is not only were there political arguments, there were religious arguments about slavery. And so there were Christians on one side, people like Spurgeon that said slavery was an evil blot. It was the worst of all villainies. And you listen to that and you're like, man, yes. That is correct. It was evil. It was terrible. But then on the other side of the issue were also Christians who were justifying. And I won't even say justifying. That's not the right word. But to, to, they, were, they were saying slavery is not only okay, it's, it's, it's condoned in the Bible. And, and we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10, find out what pleases the Lord. And they, they would go to verses like Ephesians 6, 5. Hey, slaves, here's the, here's the uh, guide for your behavior, slaves. And they would say, see, slaves are in the Bible, so therefore it's condoned. It's okay. It's okay for humans to own other humans because, look, the Bible talks about it. And we could get into so many important distinctions, and that's not what, what I want to talk about. But if you could just kind of in your mind rewind yourself 150 years, and you don't have the advantage of, of all this historical knowledge and all this understanding, and you were in the middle and you are hearing this person saying slavery is evil, and you were hearing this person quoting Bible verses saying slavery is okay, you can imagine 
how you might have been just a little confused. You can maybe put yourself emotionally in that point of view. You can understand that. Some people read the Bible and it condemns slavery. Others read the Bible and it condones slavery. Like, how, how are you, what, what, what are you both looking at? Well, they're both looking at the Bible. But they're looking at it in vastly different ways. And this is the important distinction. Charles Beecher uh, wrote this persuasive little book, um, and it was, uh, it was titled, The God of the Bible Against Slavery. And I want to read you, this is him, doesn't he look like just a cool guy? I would like to talk with him. I'd like to read you a quote uh, from this booklet that he wrote. It seems very strange that anyone should think that the Bible sanctions slavery. All right, I'm on board. Yet, the defenders of the system appeal to the Bible with boldness, as if its authority were on their side. He goes on to say, it may only be the instinctive effort of an evil system to stave off judgment by clothing itself with sacredness. Didn't these guys write awesome? Man, that's so good. He goes, he goes on to say, a fair argument ought to show that slavery is agreeable to the character of God. What's he asking? Is this pleasing to God? That's what he's asking. He goes, let us now test the system of slavery by the only fair Bible argument. An argument not from disputed theological points on which Christians may honestly disagree, but from the revealed attributes of the true God about which there can scarcely be much difference of opinion. Oh, this is good. I'm in. Tell me all about it, Charles Beecher. And he goes on to talk about God's love and God's justice. And he talks about God's attributes. And he goes down this list of all the things that God is. And then he concludes with this sentence. Listen to this. Such a system then cannot be well-pleasing to God. Oh, that is so good. That is so good. Because you, a person, maybe even honestly could read the Bible and say, well, it has these verses and there's slavery and I don't understand and I'm confused and I don't know what to do. And it's how you approach the Bible. Are we approaching the Bible to pull out from it these like specific lines that we can impose on everybody else? Or are we approaching the Bible to learn the character of God from which we can use that as a launching point to determine what kinds of things are the ways he wants us to live in the world? Are we, trying to, are we trying to find the lines? Or are we trying to please God? Why is slavery wrong? Not because of the technicalities or even the verses that directly condemn it, but because it's not keeping, in keeping with the character of God. For lots of questions in our lives, asking, is this right, will get us 75% of the way there. It'll get us most of the way there. It's not a big deal. If your kids are always arguing, why don't I hit my sister? You can say, is it, it's not right. Don't do that. It's not right. But there comes points and there comes issues in our lives where we have to ask ourselves, is this pleasing to God? Is this pleasing to God? And I think that's the better framework. Do I, is, do I care about pleasing God? So this whole thing begs this question. We're going to wrap up with this. Why do the right thing? Why, do I, why, why, why does it matter? And, uh, and I think most of us, at least me, when I think about this, I've just been really puzzling on this issue of how do you get people to care about pleasing God? Because this is what you want for your children. You want your kids to care about pleasing God. Not just to do the right thing because mom or dad said it. But you want them to care about pleasing God. How do you get people to actually care? And we want this for ourselves. We want this for our spouses. We want this for our friends, neighbors. How do we get people to care about pleasing God? Uh, a while back I attended this uh, huge um, evangelistic outreach kind of event. And uh, this organization had rented this giant space. 
they brought out all, they, they took out all the stops in terms of marketing and billboards and just, they wanted tens of thousands of people in this place and they, they were, they were going to have well-known Christian artists up on stage and they just, they were, you know, they were trying to get everybody they could to come and then they were going to, in the middle of that, they were going to have a speaker who was going to share, you know, all about Jesus and all that. That's great. It's all awesome. Well, we, we, we got there and uh, this, the host got up on stage and he's like who's excited to be here you know trying to get the crowd pumped up and the crowd's like yeah and he's like who's excited to win a car tonight you know yeah there was a car in the back that they were going to auction off to to somebody in the audience that was lucky enough to be there and i i just remember thinking like and i am very be very hesitant to to make this this criticism but i, I just remember thinking man you know that's cool and 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 maybe maybe the way to someone's heart is through, you know, the Kia Sport or whatever it was. Maybe that's the way you really get them to connect with God. But it made me, it made me worried because the, the approach was transactional. I want to go do the right thing because I get a car or iPads. That was the other thing they were giving away. I want to do the right thing because this is going to give me what I want. When what God is encouraging is something that's relational. There's, there's, no, there's no amount of incentive. I, I can't, we can't go up to our children and, you know, grab them by the shoulders and say, you must want to please God. We just, there's nothing we can do to reprogram their hearts. We can train and teach.